Well, back in the 1970s, Dr. Ed Tronick from UMass produced a groundbreaking study. He charted a new path in how we understand the connection between parents and their babies. The famous uh, still face experiment studied a mother's interaction with her baby in two scenarios. In the first scenario, the mother would play with the baby. She would make big faces. She would play. She would look uh, where the baby would point. She would coordinate her emotions with her baby's emotions. And in the second scenario, the mother would turn away for a moment and then return to the baby. But this time, for two minutes, her face remains still in the presence of the baby. The baby tries to get the attention of the mother. Baby puts out their hand, points for the mother to look. And eventually, in the, face of a, in, 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 in the presence of a still face, the baby starts to screech. And eventually, the baby starts to lose control of its posture and even starts to collapse. The study shows just how important a secure and healthy attachment is between parents and children for a child's development, or how its absence dysregulates a child's emotions. Now, please, don't email me with questions about, like, what about sleep training? You can email the professor about that, okay? Now, this research has been applied to understanding breakdowns in couples' relationships. When one partner in a relationship puts themselves out there, they make themselves vulnerable, and they are met with a stonewalled response, they get the silent treatment, this creates a profound sense of internal chaos. It's the feeling of being cut down to the knees. And when the cutoff partner is asked to describe what is it like to be stonewalled, what is it like for you to have the silent treatment, they use words like this, it feels so cold, it feels like I'm being punished, or even as strong as, it feels like the relationship is completely dead. The relationship feels like it's on the road to perdition. Well, today we're continuing our study in Lamentations, and we come to the third of the five poems in the book, and this morning we're going to be looking at the first half of it together. Last week in chapter 2, we looked closely at the prophet's lament for Jerusalem. God's holy city was destroyed by the powerhouse empire of Nebuchadnezzar. And the prophet retells the devastation that he sees all around that city. You'll remember that for years, God held up the gavel of justice. He waited for his people to return to him so that he could pardon, him, pardon them. But they forgot that God's love also requires justice against sin, even the sin of his own people. They stonewalled God and his law. They turned their face from him, and they used religion to comfort themselves and to oppress other people. And with great reluctance, God's gavel pounded for punishment, and they were sentenced to exile to Babylon. Now in chapter 3, we have recorded for us not laments for Jerusalem, but a lament song traveling from Jerusalem to exile. Like, 
this is an event where, where you have a bad experience and you replay it in your mind over and over and over again. This song, chapter 3, is the soundtrack that they would have played on the 900 walk uh, to Babylon. This was the lament that they played on repeat. And as you heard, it is a gut-wrenching lament. Is there any wonder we can't find a coloring picture for these verses in our children's curriculum today? No doubt, the imagery in this text is gruesome and disturbing, but it is fitting. Not simply because it describes the heinous nature of war and the treatment of a conquered people, but because underneath the details of this physical trauma is the horror of spiritual separation from God and all that that means. If the still face of a parent sends a baby into uncontrollable, uncontrollable distress, and the stonewalling between a couple can put a relationship on life support, how much more devastating is that separation when it's between us and the creator we were meant to know? The absence of God's presence is hell itself. It is the experience of perdition. The first thing we're going to do is look at the hardship on the walk from Jerusalem to Babylon. Look at how verse 1 starts. I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. Here we get the prophet's personal account of what it's like to be under God's judgment. The camera zooms in on his experience. Problems are worse when you have to go at them alone. And the picture we get from verse 1 is that this man is suffering all alone. The absence of God's presence starves the soul. He's isolated. But not only that, because he is God's prophet, a leader among the people, there's an added weight of God's heavy sentence upon him. If you're the head of a family, you know the weight of not just your own problems, but feel the weight of the problems of everyone else in the family as well. When your son or daughter struggles, you lose sleep over it at night too. And the prophet experiences the same kind of burden for his people. God feels absent from his life, but the people's problems, they're still his. And what we're going to see is just how heavy those problems were for the prophet. You see, when we are lamenting, we can get dressed up, we can put on a smile, or we can even put on a mask. The pain at the top of our minds, we can hide away from others. People don't get to see how roughed up we really are. But everyone sees the physical toll of this prophet's hardship. Verse 4, God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. Verse 16, he has made my teeth grind on the gravel and made me cower in ashes. Like when you're standing next to your wrecked car or lying flat on your back in a hospital bed or learning how to speak, learning how to speak again after you've had a stroke, there is no hiding of his lament from others. 
just to lay eyes on him is to see how much he is suffering. But if they were just physical injuries, he might be able to lament for a season and move on because time can heal pain. Pain is a physical thing. But suffering combines the physical and the spiritual. Suffering is when pain boxes with your identity as a human being. Suffering is when you fight with your own theology. If last week's depiction of God left your head scratching, this chapter will leave you with your gut clenching. Psalm 107 celebrates how God delivers his people. Here are some of the words. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. The prophet can relate to that, but there is just one major difference. Verses 6 and 7. God has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. What do you do when your jailer is God? Maybe the prophet should pray. He may be weighed down in chains, but he could still lift up his heart to God, can he? Well, he does that. And what does he find? That his prayers hit the ceiling that heaven's doors are shut to him. Just like us, the prophet knows the feeling that God isn't listening. He knows the thundering silence of unanswered prayer. But he doesn't just stay imprisoned. He's let out like a sheep from its cattle stall. You know when you're first learning about God as a child, we often learn Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a psalm of great comfort. For David in that psalm, God's wrath, uh, God's rod and staff protected the sheep and guided them into green pastures. But for the prophet leaving Jerusalem, God's rod is one of heavy wrath like we read in verse 1. God prods the prophet into the desert beyond all the green pastures. Isaiah the prophet puts it this way, God will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom. That means God is the shepherd who protects and guards his sheep at all costs. But look at what the prophet says in verses 10 and 11. God is like a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and he tore me into pieces. Just like in nature shows, God is like a predator that hunts down his people. When God liberated his people from Egypt, Moses sang, The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. But now the prophet laments in verse 12, God sent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. This is what God-forsakenness looks like. How filled with trouble is the road that leaves Jerusalem that leads to Babylon? 
And as if that wasn't enough, there is a most bitter taste and irony of where the prophet and the people end up in exile. The book of Genesis describes the geography of Eden in this way. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And the name of one of them is the Tigris, and the name of the other is the Euphrates. The place of paradise is now their place of exile. What used to be heaven on earth has become hell. Adam and Eve learned the costly lesson long ago in the garden that breaking covenant with God is paradise lost. But now the prophet and the people learn that ignoring God's commands means that the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is lost. Babylon will now be their home. The last words we read from the prophet today were, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Is there any doubt why the prophet would say this? How absolutely troubling. Amen. Let's pray. We said last week that lamentation stretches our understanding of faith, and it really does. We can lament because God is sovereign over all things, but it stretches our faith in another way as well. Yes, the infant cries in pain when the parent is absent, but that ache is also the confirmation of their love for the parents. It's true that God will answer all of our laments, But ultimately, it means that our laments are about our desire to be with God more than anything else. Psalm 42, 2 says this, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? But as we heard today, sometimes that longing for God looks like fighting words. Now, I don't know everyone in this room But I'm willing to bet, maybe I shouldn't say that in church, I'm willing to double down that your worst fights are are with those that you love the most. We push away those we most need. And their absence from our lives feels like an attack. But it doesn't change the fact that we still long for them. It's the problem we see in the movie Edward Scissorhands. If you haven't seen the movie, I just gave you the whole movie. There's a guy named Edward, and he has scissor hands. You could imagine the pros and cons of this, right? Despite the fact that he loves, he can't help but cut into people because of his condition. That's important to note. Even when his heart is disposed to love, he inadvertently slashes people. And because of our twisted nature, that's true in our relationships as well. We cut even when we don't want to. No matter how much we want to stay in Jerusalem, we keep finding ourselves in Babylon again and again. We were created for Eden, but we have destined ourselves for exile. Our condition is lamentable. We keep longing for the God we keep losing hold of. 
Listen to how one follower of Jesus wrestles with this in one of her letters to a spiritual director. This terrible sense of loss since 49 or 50 years old, this untold darkness, this loneliness, this continual longing for God, God which gives me that pain deep down in my heart, darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason, The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God, and then it is that I feel he does not want me. He is not there. God does not want me. Sometimes I just hear my own heart cry out, my God, and nothing else comes except the torture and pain that I cannot explain. These are the words of Angus Goya Boya. We know her better as Mother Teresa of Calcutta. For many years, in the face of all suffering that she saw in the face of the poor, Mother Teresa felt nothing but an ache for God and never any consolation. But you see, God's absence springs forth lament. And this lament stretches out our capacity to love, even our love for God. But lament also stretches our understanding of grace as well, in addition to our understanding of faith. You see, 500 years ago, after God's people were in exile, two disciples of Jesus found themselves on a road leaving Jerusalem like the prophet and the people, they too, they were, they were lamenting. They too carried news of perdition. Days earlier, they witnessed the destruction of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus' death was brutal. They saw his bones crushed by nails and a spear pushed through his side. Jesus' death was accursed, Deuteronomy says, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And for six hours, Jesus hung on a cross in Jerusalem. He extended out his loving arms to them, but his friends turned their faces away from him. God's verdict against sin fell upon him, and he cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prophet of God had been through hell, and he was crucified dead, and he was buried. These two disciples hoped that this Jesus would be the one who would redeem Israel. The exiles hoped the same when they traveled from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they all share this news with the latecomer to their walk. Do you know that one of the cruelest things that we could ever do to someone in lament is to try to make them work for hope? Look on the bright side. Could be worse. Be thankful. Cheer up. Trust me, it will be okay. You cannot work for hope. Like faith, it is a gift of grace. Let's be clear. The disciples were in no condition to have faith. They were too heavy with lament to believe or to have hope. In fact, they had every reason to disbelieve and to despair. Dead means dead, and crucifixion means cursed. But thank God, 
He responds to unbelief with his grace. He gives our hearts his hope. We don't have to conjure up the strength to believe it. God's hope may come late, but it is always at its appointed time. Hope shows up on the road next to you, right when you least expect it. They don't see it, but the disciples raised their lament to Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. And don't you know that all your laments are in the presence of the risen Christ too? But like the disciples, we have a hard time seeing it. When we lament the loss of a dream or the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one, it feels like that's the final verdict in our lives. Many times in the face of loss, we rethink all the things we would have done differently as if lament took us down the wrong path. But as we see from the story, lament and resurrection are on the same road. Only the resurrection has the power to change what we see when we, when we lament. Because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, we know that God's final verdict is to be for us and not against us. Earlier when we heard the great sufferings of the prophet, we winced with discomfort and we shifted in our seats. In lament, we saw God forsakenness. But in the face of resurrection, Jesus' gruesome death on the cross wasn't God's abandonment of us, but it was his embrace. Theologian Bruce McCormick puts it this way, God will not allow anything to stand in the way of his love. The holiness of divine love is irresistible. God's will to love the creature will not be stopped by the creature to resist that love. God's will, God's love will reach its goal, even if that path to that end lies through condemning, excluding, and annihilating all resistance to it. God's love turns to wrath when it is resisted, But not for a minute does it cease to be love, even when it expresses itself in wrath. I should have just read that and sat down this morning. Jesus' wounds are a sign of his love for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. For in his body he has put to death our separation from God forever. The resurrection of Jesus means that our future with God is so secure that even when we lose heart, we do not lose hope because it is right in front of us. Paul tells us that the nature of the Christian life is this. We are sorrowful, yet we are always rejoicing. That we grieve, but we do not grieve as if we do not have hope. You see, eventually, God's grace reveals to the disciples that it was the risen Christ with them all along. And they run back to Jerusalem, not as defeated disciples, but as emboldened preachers. They tell the story of how there may be weeping through the night, but joy comes in the morning. God has redeemed his people once and for all. 
earlier we heard that the road leaving Jerusalem was filled with hardship. But here we see that the road that leaves Jerusalem is also filled with the greatest of all hope. The cross means that God has turned his face towards us and not against us because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And may that be our ongoing hope through all our laments today and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, you did not wait for us to give us resurrection hope. Oh Lord, we know that in every moment that we lament, you are really before us, but we have trouble seeing it. Would you grant us the eyes of faith that you granted those two disciples so that we would see that it was necessary for you to be crucified and then to be raised that it was God's will for you to suffer for our salvation and that you call us to a life of suffering and expectation of resurrection. Let us never lose sight of that great hope we ask through all our laments. In Jesus' name, amen.